0: So over the last few weeks, we've been talking about community, and, and the goal here was to try and understand a few things. What is a community, and why does it matter in the life of a Christian? How does a community function, and ultimately, how does it grow? This week, we're going to talk about the last thing, growing community, but before we get there, I want to refresh your memory on what a community is and how it works, because they're very important to understanding how a community grows. So one of the things we talked about was understanding the identity of the community. Who are we? What does living in community have to do with following Jesus? So there are functional reasons for this, some of which Dan touched on last week, but I want to make sure you understand this community thing conceptually first. As a people, we are called to be holy, like God is holy. Now the word holy means to be set apart. So when you use the phrase holy moly, you've identified a moly that is set apart from all other molies. We are called to be distinct, set apart within, but not separate from the world that surrounds us. We see this modeled in many of the laws that were handed down to Moses from God. As recorded in Exodus, after leading God's people out of Egypt from under the control of Pharaoh, Moses ends up on a mountain, and God provides him the laws of how his people were to live. From there, it was Moses' responsibility to go down the mountain and take them to the people. These were things like what to eat in Deuteronomy fourteen seven, Yet of those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these, the camel, the hare, and the rock badger, because they chew the cud, but do not part the hoof, are unclean for you. Scripture on how to dress, Deuteronomy 22, 11-12. You should not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. And also laws on how to act. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother, Deuteronomy 22, 1. See, these examples take a lot of flack today. People that don't follow God use them as a reason to continue not doing so. They're outdated, unnecessary, they're foolish. What does God care what we eat? Why does he care how we dress? Doesn't an almighty God have better things to worry about? In response, I point out that some are a matter of simple obedience, and some exist for very practical reasons. But even beyond that, these laws don't always just exist as a guide for proper behavior. It is so much more than that. It's a matter of identity. People that love and follow God in those times can be identified as acting in a certain way. If you're part of the nation of Israel in that day, and you meet a guy who's chowing down on a barbecue-style animal that splits the hoof, you know that he ain't from around here. And in response, you keep an eye out for him. You make sure that he's being treated well. You let him eat from the edges of your field. There were other laws that God passed down on how to care for that alien in your gates. You see, these laws are a reflection of who God is. We are called to be holy. Just as our God is distinct from any other God, we are called to be distinct in his service. A community, then, is defined. It gets its identity by its laws, how it behaves. And we, as a community of believers that follow Jesus, get our identity by what he has done for us, And by submission to what he has called us to do in the service of his kingdom. By the way the recipients of the law behaved in Moses' time, you could tell that they were followers of God. And by the way they behaved, you could tell when they had fallen away from God. Now this wasn't just an Old Testament law of Moses thing. God providing laws, an ethic which to live that helps provide identity to his kingdom, his community, continued through Jesus. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. This starts in Matthew chapter 5. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, notice it's when it says he went up on the mountain, that's Jesus. He sits down on the mountain, and he starts teaching his disciples. And the Sermon on the Mount is all about the ethics, the laws that govern living in the kingdom of God. Does that, does that seem familiar? See, see the similarities in the Old Testament law there. God, Jesus, is passing down the attributes of the identity of his community to those that are to live it and to take it further, just like he did with Moses to take it down to the people of the nation of Israel. Now, let's see how that uh, conversation plays out. Still in Matthew 5, it says, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek Now, that's just a taste of Jesus' teaching in that section of Matthew. But look at our identity as members of his kingdom. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. We make peace. We are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. I know that sometimes we struggle with understanding the laws of the Old Testament in light of what we know of the New Testament. But notice that Jesus notes no contradiction here. In fact, he explicitly states in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. But to fulfill them and hold in on that fulfill word, right? Fulfill gives you the connotation of coming to completion, completing the laws. It's not just saying they are to continue. We obviously don't do those things today. But Jesus came to fulfill them. So said if you are looking at them through the lens, something has changed, I guess, is the the thing to take away from that. Something is changing as Jesus interacts with those laws. So if you're looking at the laws, uh, both what Jesus has passed down through the Sermon on the Mount and what God has given to Moses, through the lens of the identity of the community, there is no contradiction between the two. The laws, the identity of that community before Jesus came to earth, changes in the presence of Jesus. You know, I've seen folks get kind of worked up with that shift as if God doesn't have the right to change things up. But this is the God that says in Isaiah 43:19, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. The definition of perfection moves with God. Part of the identity of his community changes, as it should. If Jesus came and nothing changed, then we misunderstand Jesus. Life in the presence of Jesus is simply different than life without him. And part of the identity of the community Reflects that shift. Now when you think of identity. I want you to recognize that it not only provides definition of what a community believes. That's certainly part of it. But we're called to more than just believing something. The characteristics of our community aren't just what we believe. They're also the means through which we impact the world. Our identity is part of what we do. We are not just people who as a group agree that feeding the hungry and clothing the naked is a good idea. We feed the hungry. And clothe the naked. We do it. We are not just people with the bumper sticker that says peace on it. We make peace. We are not just people that think it's a good idea to love and care for the orphan and the widow. As evidenced by many couples within our community. Both in the past, in the present, and looking towards the future. We actually care for the orphan. That's our identity. It's who we are called to be as residents in the kingdom of God. Our identity is wrapped up not just what we think but how we react to what we think. See, especially in our modern Western culture, we have a tendency to separate who we are from what we do. If we do something foolish or sinful, we may say things like, well, that's not really who I am. Or if it's somebody else, we might say, well, so-and-so really isn't that kind of person. Really? I mean, when does this real you kick in? At what point do we get to stop dealing with the fraudster that has laid hold of your life? Or are we being dishonest? So are you claiming an identity that you are not pursuing? Don't let yourself be fooled into thinking that our identity is simply determined on what we want to believe. In John 14:15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not just agree with my commandments, you will keep my commandments. Our community is one of action. Now, don't misunderstand me. You're not going to be perfect. You will not always live consistently with the ethic of your community. But we serve a gracious king whose mercies are new every morning and your shortcomings are well known and paid for by Jesus on the cross who has restored your identity through his sacrifice. But if you think that you can accept his mercy and forgiveness and claim the identity of his community as a Christian to take that name upon yourself and then refuse his call to live in a holy way, then you have literally taken his name in vain. You have taken the name of Christ, put it upon yourself as a Christian in vanity, for your own glory and benefit. You have attempted to steal his identity and pass it off as your own. You have ultimately asked for him as a savior, but you are refusing him as Lord. And it simply doesn't work that way. You see, if we mistakenly believe that our identity in the kingdom of God is completely summed up in whether we get wet in a baptismal pool or not, whether we said a few words with our eyes closed at the front of the church or not, we are misunderstanding what living in God's kingdom, being a member of his community, is truly about. Now hear me clearly. This is not as much of a salvation issue as it is one of identity, what you are being saved in too. Questions like why am I here, what is my purpose in life, and what does God want from me are questions that are often rooted in not understanding your identity. As a community, we are a distinct group of people within the world who share a common identity as servants in the kingdom of God that is alive and kicking as we speak. And that's extremely important to understand because part of growing a community is being honest and clear about what you are actually calling people into, not just what you are saving them from. Quickly, I want to remind you what Dan touched on last week on how a community functions. Although we are all called to the same ethics within the community, with the same intentions and purposes, and for the same reasons, God has created us individually to serve in unique ways for those purposes. All of us are skilled in different areas and have different gifts through which we can serve in the community. Romans 12:6 6-8 says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does act of mercy with cheerfulness. All those individual things still point to a whole. But there are no loners in the kingdom of God. Being part of his community, his collective bride, is not an option. So There's this, this picture in Revelation where Jesus comes back and is marrying his bride, the church. And what I don't see is his marriage to his collective church and then a separate marriage for Chuck, who doesn't like crowds. Or Luann, who thinks Jesus is cool, but just can't get on board with these Christians. See, you can't follow Jesus without being in a crowd of people that is following him too. It's simply not an option to bail on the church. That's his bride, and you are a part of that if you are following Christ. You cannot do it without it. So now that we have a functional understanding of what a community is, and where its identity is derived, and also how it works, let's talk about how to grow one. First of all, does God want the church to grow? Yes, yes. Seriously, stay away from the online. People write weird stuff online. I saw a number of different articles within the last few weeks about people that are upset about the pursuit of growing the church. Yes, yes, God wants to grow the church. First Timothy two three says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, will everyone be saved? No. No, we know that there will be those that will simply reject God and in response will get what they want an eternal life without him. But it is God's desire that all people be saved. And as they are saved, they join his kingdom and the church grows. Now be careful here that we see this correctly, though. God isn't interested in growing our event attendance. He isn't interested in us building bigger and bigger venues. And he isn't interested in how many people we have on staff. He isn't interested in any of those things if they are not actually helping to grow his kingdom. Which means when we try to gauge which things we should or should not be doing, Which things we should or should not be investing in, which things we should or should not be spending our time on as a church, we need to be measuring the right things. Too often churches celebrate the things that look like worldly success, more people, more money, more programs, more venues. But victory for the kingdom is measured differently. And as a young, as a growing church, we have to be careful. So yes, God wants the church, his community, his kingdom to grow. But ultimately, how is it done? I want to bring you back to Acts 6. Uh, we covered this a few months ago. We just got finished coming out of an Acts series. We're, we're heading into Matthew uh, within the next couple of months. I'm really excited about that. Um, but Acts 6, I think, illustrates this pretty well. And uh, starting Acts 6, verse 1 says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and a bunch of other dudes. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, I want you to notice some of the community stuff that we've talked about. There's a need here. There are some widows who aren't receiving food in the daily distribution. Now, we love Jesus. Do we feed widows? You bet we do. And it's going to get done. Notice they're not talking about whether it's going to happen or not. That's implied. Those widows are going to get it fed. The discussion is around who should do it. The 12 disciples are gifted in teaching, so they don't want to stop doing that to handle the food distribution. So they appoint someone else to do it, someone who's got the skills and the talents in that area. Is that familiar? You bet it is. A community that is focused on the right thing finds the people that are gifted in particular areas to serve in that way. And what's the result? The word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. What? No tricks? No 10 ways to share your faith? No quiz to find out your evangelism personality? You see, here's the deal. When the people of God are obedient to the life within the kingdom of God that they have been called to, the church grows. Now, of course, this account is not prescriptive, nor is it exhaustive, exhaustive. Excuse me, It doesn't mean that you can throw rice at a widow, drive by, and just chuck the rice out and expect the kingdom to grow. But look at what they're focused on. We don't see here a campaign to grow the church. We don't see a marketing blitz or an implementation of visitor greeting methodology. We see needs being met, people doing what God has called them to do, and the number of disciples multiplying greatly in Jerusalem. Now, can we see that in Johnston, in West Des Moines, in Irvindale? Look at Acts 9.31. Saul's recently seen Jesus. He stopped persecuting Christians, and with the help of Barnabas, his buddy has convinced the leaders in the early church that his conversion is legit. And look how Luke, the author of Acts, explains the result. It says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord, think obedience, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Again, if we stick to doing what we're called to do, God will do the rest. He didn't have to do it that way. He can do what he wants. It's his kingdom. He could just grab folks, but he uses us that his kingdom would proceed, that his kingdom would progress. But it is his kingdom, and he's sending us out in the service of the king, and the church multiplies. It's that easy. Good. Go. Get out of here. Stop listening. Go make it happen. But it isn't that easy, is it? Let me ask you this. Have you experienced the desire to talk to somebody? You saw someone and you wanted to show them how the kingdom of God works, how it serves, and how awesome and merciful and gracious God is. You saw them hurting or lost or lacking peace, and you thought of how different their circumstances would be if they only knew Jesus. Perhaps you felt that, you thought that, but you didn't do anything about it. The moment passed. The situation just didn't seem right. You were afraid of saying the wrong thing. You are afraid it might not be received well. You were afraid you were overstepping your bounds. You were afraid that talking to someone might put your job at risk. You were afraid. Fear. Fear is the barrier. See, we've got the tools. And we have the playbook. And we have the Holy Spirit. But we are often held back by fear. Now, don't defend yourself, either inwardly or outwardly. Not me. I'm not afraid. It's simple fear. That's all it is. And that's what I want to talk about with the rest of our time today. See, if the church grows when we live out our identity and the Holy Spirit goes about his business, then we're the only inconsistent part of that equation. And our inconsistency almost always, if not personal unbelief or sin, is rooted in some kind of fear. So I want to talk through a couple of the fears that keep us from fulfilling our identity, from pursuing boldly God's desire that all be saved, and ultimately from growing the church. Fear number one, I'm not free to talk about Jesus Insert your situation. Maybe it's at work. You're not for free to talk about Jesus at work. Maybe it's at school. Maybe it's at your recent party caucus. Maybe you're not free to talk about Jesus at your family reunion. You name it. Everyone has a situation where talking about Jesus presents a problem. Bring it up, and you might get fired or demoted or at least ostracized. Bring it up, and they might accuse you of splitting your political party and talking about something that's irrelevant. Bring it up, and they might—I don't—give you the tension or embarrass you at least in front of everyone else. Or cause trouble in the family can those things happen sure but let's not confuse that with freedom you see those circumstances have little to do with true freedom the truth is is that we are free john 8 32 says and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free paul writes that the law of the spirit of life has set you free in christ jesus and peter reminds us live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil but living as servants of god you see we are free in ways that someone who doesn't know jesus couldn't even fathom and yet we have shackled ourselves truth that which not only sets us free but but contains the freedom for those that we interact with has been silenced at our own hand with our acquiescence for what our work our comfort our pride our safety You are light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do you see in here room for justification as to when it's okay to hide your light? Have you ever seen a city on a hill that decides to move down from the hill for a while and then jump back up whenever it wants? See, there could be consequences to doing that. There's consequences to letting your light shine. That's true. Matthew 5.10 said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. See, it seems silly to us sometimes in our culture. We don't know of persecution. No one's getting beheaded. No one's getting put in prison for sharing Jesus. But I wonder, does persecution seem so foreign to us sometimes because we simply won't put ourselves in the position to be persecuted? See, I won't lose my job for sharing Jesus. Well, not this one anyway. Because I'll allow the threat of that to be sufficient to keep from speaking. I won't be made fun of at school for talking about the Bible as if it is the true word of God because I will simply keep my mouth shut. But you don't understand, Ben. I need that job. If I don't play by their rules, they won't provide for me. They won't take care of me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 2.10. I get it. I really do truly get it. There is a legitimate worldly fear of upsetting the infrastructure that makes our world turn. Our jobs, our education, our political system. And the truth is, is that from a worldly perspective, what we do will look like a failure. Jesus tells his disciples that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And at that moment in Matthew, we need to be careful. The cross as a symbol of salvation is nowhere in sight. A crucifixion was the punishment for a failed revolutionary. Jesus was calling them to deny themselves and the structure of the world they lived in and join him in a failed revolution. We are revolutionaries. We have ultimate freedom from the bondage of sin in slavery and live under the power of the Holy Spirit, the living God within us. And that makes us very dangerous people for the cause of our community. And yet, we often live under the fear of man. What man will say, what he will do. How he will make us feel. There will be consequences to what we do. If you got on board with Christianity thinking that your life wouldn't change. Then you misunderstood the offer. Consequences. We focus on if they persecute you, they will persecute me. And we seem to forget if they kept my word, they will keep yours. And that's beautiful. Because that means that you in this day can be a person that passes on the word of Jesus And that has the same type of impact that he had when he was ministering in his day. When we are obedient in the service of our king, he will do the rest. And the church will grow. Now don't misunderstand me in this. I'm not advocating for you to set up a soapbox in your work lobby or your school lunchroom or the farmer's market and start yelling, truth! Truth! No one is listening to you and you look silly. So you can't invite someone into a community without engaging them as people, as unique parts of a whole that God loves and desires to save. And to be honest, that's one of the failures of inviting someone to church. That's the go-to action, right? Our one and done shot is to invite someone to church and then leave it up to them. But my question would be, what do you want to bring them here for? I can't think of a more awkward place to bring someone who doesn't love Jesus than to your average service in a Bible-believing church. First of all, they walk in and they don't know anybody. I mean, they know you, but unless you're creeping by the door, it's going to take a little bit for them to get to you. They're the outsider, and they're completely surrounded. And then there's the songs. Think if someone invited you to a building, and there were 100 people in there, and the first 25 minutes when you walked in, they were singing about the awesome power and glory of Zeus. You wouldn't do that, right? You'd just stand there. That's awkward. And that's what it's like for someone who doesn't know Jesus walking into church for the first time. Eventually, they'll see that we're dead committed to our shot glasses of grape juice and morsels of bread to the point that if you don't think like we think, you don't get any. No juice for you. And then people are randomly raising their hands like we're at an auction, or they're bowing their heads like they have a headache. And the sermon is basically, you stink, Jesus rocks, get out. That's a tough environment to grow community. In fact, the church building is a terrible front door into the community of believers. It's not that it can't work, but it's like inviting strangers to your family reunion. So what do you do? The hard work of being part of their lives. Time is generally the price of influence. Have folks over for dinner. Babysit their kids. Serve them. Love on them. Open up your lives to them. It's an inconvenience and a risk. Opening yourself up and your lives to people is risky, risky business. People are messy and they bring their mess with them when they get into your life. But it's those types of situations that give you opportunity to be obedient with the identity of our community. They get to see your life following Christ and think, you know, there's something about that family. Even when they go through hard times, they go through them differently. They they celebrate differently. When they struggle, they're not a perfect family, but they just there's just something about that family, and I want to know more. See, part of this is the reason behind the name and focus change that you're going to see within our small groups. Starting this week, we're going to transition from small groups to community groups, and we're going to blow the lid off of what it means to have a community group at Pathway Church. Basically, you're looking at four criteria for community group. One, your group has to meet regularly. Just some consistency. If you're going to build community, uh, people need to know when things are happening. Okay, So it's got to meet regularly. Not necessarily weekly, not necessarily bi-weekly, but regular meetings or get-togethers. Your group has to be open to the public. Uh, Again, you're trying to build community here. So if it's just you and and your buddies playing poker and no one else is allowed in, that's not going to count. It's got to be open to the public um, within reason. right? If you can't fit 50 folks in your house, that's fine. Uh, But whatever you got going on, it has to be open to the public. Uh, you have to have an identified leader who church leadership can interact with. There's a couple of reasons for that. Um, we want to be able to keep you guys up to date with stuff's going on and ways to help make your group a success. Uh, but also if we have questions or need to know more about the group, we need to know who to contact. So you got to have a leader. And lastly, whatever you're doing can't be in violation of our core values. That's it. Notice there's not a requirement that, for example, you go through our weekly questions that we've been producing for the small groups. So a good example of community group then would be the Pathway Cycling Club. Those guys are going to meet regularly to go cycling. Anyone is invited to come along. They have a leader, and what they are doing is not in violation of our core values. It's perfect. See, the goal with the small groups has always been to build community, and people having shared experiences does that very thing. Now, I want you to think about this. Which is going to be easier to invite someone who does not know or love Jesus at all to the Sunday morning Zeus sing-along thing or to come bike riding? And they like bike riding. Let's say they agree to go. They go bike riding. And now they get to know a bunch of the folks that are in the cycling club. Most of them are going to be rooted here in the church. They get to see their lives. They get to have conversations. And now when that invitation is extended to Sunday morning, it's a way more natural experience. They already know quite a few people here. They have a foundation for what goes on and what to expect. And by engaging in the lives of the rest of the folks in the cycling club, they hopefully have the desire to learn what it's rooted in. Relationships. Relationships are a much better front door to the community. Than the physical front door of the church see we've we been heading into this uh, to this building we'll, we'll be in within you know two to three months and uh, and one of the things we keep talking about is 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 it doesn't solve everything the building doesn't solve everything it'll solve some you know some um, space issues it'll solve some of the setup issues that we have but but it's just the physical front door people aren't just going to flock to that especially people that don't know jesus we might gain some christians that come interested but if we're looking to reach and to save the lost, the front door of the church just isn't the best option. Relationships do that. And it's ultimately still the goal of bringing people to Jesus through these groups. Uh, even though we're doing other things than studying the Bible, um, it's, it's through that community we're still hoping to point people to Jesus. We're just broadening that infrastructure, and hopefully we're making a much better position to actually reach people that need Jesus. See, our previous setup of doing the small group questions was very friendly to people that were already Christians, but not so much for people who weren't. If you think about it, we were given questions about um, talking over a sermon that those people wouldn't have heard, perhaps from a scripture coming from a Bible that they've never read and a God they don't believe in. And and if you're building community the right way, you start to get into some depth uh, stuff with the community members, and, and you're asking those people to kind of show up and be comfortable in that environment. It's an awkward place to do it. Uh, so it wasn't really positioned that well to help people or to encourage community. Uh, with people who didn't already love Jesus, uh, the community groups, just for some technical stuff, are self-governing. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to appoint people. You set them up, uh, and and they have their own built-in life cycle. If groups of people are excited about riding bikes, or serving at a soup kitchen, or talking about parenting issues, those groups will form and meet and hopefully grow. If excitement fades or the leader moves on to do something else, if someone else takes it up, that's cool. It's great. If not, it, it goes away, and that's okay, that's what it's supposed to do. We're basically not going to get into the business of perpetuating groups uh, or studies or whatever if, if the people that are in them aren't excited to keep them going. Um, you know we've gotten in a position where stuff hangs around for three years longer than it should have, uh, because we, weren't, we didn't have a plan to kill it. And basically the community groups just have their own life cycle. We're going to do things that we're passionate about. If God has put a passion and some skills in your life uh, to, to put a group together, that's awesome. And if he moves you to somewhere else and there's no one else to take it up, that's cool. It'll just fade away. That's not what God has us doing at the moment. That's totally all right. It has a life cycle. Things will die. Groups will pass. Groups will fade. And we have to be all right with that. And it's okay that they go away because our folks will move on to something else that God has them pointed to. That's the life cycle. Our current small groups will continue to meet at their own discretion, and we're still going to prepare weekly questions in case folks want to use them. There just isn't a requirement or expectation that they're used. In fact, there aren't questions this week because I want you guys to talk about the future of your community group. What do you guys want to do with your time? What is your group going to focus on? Are you going to continue with the questions? Are you going to do a completely different Bible study? Uh, Is it something else entirely? Spend time this week talking about that. What do you guys want to do in your community group? I'll be providing more details about the structure in the weeks to come, but be thinking about what opportunities might exist for you in leading a community group. God has placed certain skills and knowledge and passions within you, and he might be calling you to use them in this way. All right, second fear. I had a big list of fears. We just don't have time for all of them, so we're going to hit the second one, and then we'll have to call it a day. Fear number two, I'm not sure what to say or how people will react. See, this is a fear that almost is always born out of good intentions. You want to use an opportunity to talk about Jesus, but you're not sure what to say. What if I say the wrong thing? What if people ask me a bunch of questions that I can't answer? And I'm going to make this real easy for you. Just tell the truth. Share what you know, your experiences, your life, your relationship with Jesus. He's not asking you to approach someone at the office and give them your findings of tracing the lineage of the priestly line back to Zadok through the prophecy of Ezekiel. Don't pretend to know things you don't. Don't prepare a lengthy treatise on why they need Jesus. If you love Jesus and love other people, conversations will begin to flow naturally because when you love someone, you like to talk about them, especially if they're helpful, and especially to other people that you love that need help. You're fitting two things together. It's just like a Chinese restaurant. You go have some great Chinese food and show up to the office the next day, and some guy's like, hey, man, I'm hankering for some Chinese. Does anybody know anything? You're a problem solver, right? You can personally vouch for great Chinese food at this joint, and you want to share that with them, and you've solved the problem. Sharing your relationship with Christ, he's not the Chinese food. That's a cool bumper sticker, but that's it's not the exact correlation I'm thinking of. But, but it's the same basic premise where someone has an issue going on in life. They, you know, they're losing hope. You know, they're having marital problems. There's something up with their life, and you have gone through similar things, and you know that Jesus, pointing them to Christ, will help those things in their life. All you're doing is providing solutions to problems. You wouldn't hesitate to tell a guy about the sweet Chinese food down the street. You shouldn't hesitate to tell them about Christ and what He's done in your life. You're just you're sharing a personal story. There's nothing more natural than that. If we can get away from the fear or the social stigma of doing so, offer to pray for them. That's another option. Now, listen, I've, I've yet to meet someone incensed by an offer of prayer. I'm sure there's a guy somewhere who's outraged when you do that type of thing, but I've yet to meet him. You might get a polite no, thank you. That happens, but most of the time. People will appreciate that, and you have a built-in follow-up. See, so there's a reason that people that don't love God still love pastors do their funeral. Deep down, as Blaise Pascal said, men despise religion, they hate it, and fear it is true. There's always a fear that it might, it might help. It might be accurate. This God might be real. And as such, few people will turn down and offer a prayer. As for people's reaction, how they respond to you when you talk to them about that kind of thing, or you share information about what Christ has done in your life, look at the people's reaction when Jesus teaches. Some of them simply turn around. And leave. And that's Jesus, and you're no Jesus. It's going to happen to you. You are not responsible for people leaving or for them rejecting Jesus. They make their own choices. But that doesn't change what it is that you're supposed to do. You know, there have been situations that I've run into where people I knew had sin in their life. And I knew it was my responsibility to talk to them, to help them seek restoration with God and their community. But I was afraid, afraid that they'd be offended afraid that they'd see me as judgmental, afraid that they'd ultimately reject God because of my offensive judgmental behavior. But that's foolish. And frankly, it was ultimately just laziness. God entrusted us to care and watch over our brothers and sisters in the community. And I have in the past allowed the fear of man's reaction to trump my responsibility to that very man and the community that surrounds him. Some people will reject Jesus and his forgiveness, and that hurts my heart terribly. You're going to have that. You're going to share that with somebody who needs him desperately, and they're not going to see it, and they're going to turn their back, and it's going to hurt you. But that doesn't make the truth not the truth. And we will, in this community, love people enough not to lie to them. And we will love them enough to say something when they are destroying themselves or others. To fear the reaction of people is to not love them enough to tell them the truth, even when their reaction is carries risks but remember though that they are not your risks they are God risks there are many other fears like I said that may exist that keep you from doing the things that grow the church and if you're running into something specific please use the folks in your community to talk through it the encouragement of the people God has surrounded you with is invaluable but before I let you go I want to remind you of a few things when the people of God are obedient to the life within the kingdom of God that they have been called to the church grows there's a personal element to that, a reminder that what you do matters, not only to yourself, but to members of your community and to those that are not yet here. Also, make discipleship a priority. It says go forth and make disciples. Better rendered as, as you go, as you live your life, live it in a way that makes disciples. Our community should grow by folks that need Jesus. We need to be careful with this, guys. We do not grow the kingdom of God by trading Christians around. Should you invite other Christians here? Sure. That's how I got here. That's how almost all of us got here. And that's great. I hope you feel loved and you're finding connections, joining community and being equipped. But if all we're doing is trading Christians around, being the safe landing spot for folks when they get burnt out somewhere else, celebrating a past baptism event and salvation and waiting for the whole earth thing to be over, we are missing it. We are straight up missing it. See, God is the God of the living. We're not dead. His kingdom is not dead. And there are millions of people in this world, thousands within yelling distance of our collective influence, who are spiritually dead. And we have become far too comfortable with that. Do not be afraid. The Holy Spirit has got this thing. Be free. Live free. Obey. And watch him grow his church. Have a good week, guys.